0: Come into this room, this temple, and join those of you, the 40 of you who have been practicing over this past month, and to come together with those of you who have just arrived. There is a delicious and quite palpable stillness an openness, presence that's already established in the feel and the hearts and minds of those in this room. And when I've come up in the last days to visit the retreat and seen those of you who are here sitting and walking, it's a little bit like seeing a clipper ship in a good breeze with the sails trimmed properly going across there's this something that's both harmonious and silent and alive at the same time now the seas are going to be a little rougher for a day or two as we all come together integrate ourselves and included in those who will be uh, Joining us, for those of you I've not met, my name is Jack Cornfield, and the others of this teaching team, going first in this direction, on your left next to me is Anna Douglas, one of the senior teachers here at Spirit Rock, one of the teachers who's established this center and taught for many, many years. Next to her, John Travis, another of our Senior teachers and practitioners for a decade from India and uh, so forth, from starting in the 1960s um, for years and years. Um, and then um, next to John, two seats over, is Diana Winston, who has been um, one of the teachers for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Over these last years, as well as leading retreats elsewhere, and she is here in the capacity as a teacher in training, and we'll both be sitting in on interviews and offering some interviews and and leading sittings. And then in this direction, on your right, Julie Wester, another of our Spirit Rock founding teachers. She was um, on the. First staff at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, and prior to that had been working in establishing a meditation center here in California in the early 70s. And Robert Hall, and Julie Wester, I should say one more thing. Um, uh, Julie Wester will be here, very grateful for this. Um, Marie Manchatz is unable to teach this retreat, and we only learned in the last number of days that due to some um, strong personal um, difficulties in her life and circumstance that she's unable to come and Julie was willing to join us and teach with us I'm very very happy about that. And then Robert Hall, another of the founding teachers of Spirit Rock and um, practitioner for decades and um, Robert who is now, currently living and teaching down in Baja California in Todos Santos. And then Eugene Cash, next to him, um, another of our Spirit Rock senior teachers and uh, um, practitioner for very long time. Those of, Most of us have been teaching this two-month retreat now for the last five years. And in addition, we have two other uh, teachers, um, and you'll notice it on the schedule, which I believe was just posted, in the early morning from 5 to 5.30, before the first morning sitting goes 5.30 to, oh, excuse me, from five 5.30 to 6, before this uh, sitting from 6 to 6.45, Tisha Bell will be leading Qigong energy movement practices as a way to start the day. And they're really wonderful beginning a day of practice. And then Rona Edman, who is um, a senior teacher of Kripala Yoga and a trainer of yoga teachers around the world, um, will be joining us to lead yoga um, for both sessions gentle, and moderate yoga in the afternoon, And she's also taught here previously at this retreat. So this is the new team to come in. And our hope, and I think our very deepest intention, is to support you, to help hold the environment of the retreat so that you can do the work of your body, heart, and mind in the deepest possible way to um, instruct, to support, um, and hopefully even to inspire. So this evening, rather than beginning as we often do at the start of retreats with a whole long introduction of how special it is to come on retreats and refuges and precepts and so forth. We're going to save those for the walking period afterward uh, uh, for those who've just arrived. And instead, we'd like to start with a Dharma talk, both for those who are continuing and for those of you who are now entering this month of practice. It's a... kind of amazing adventure, if you will, to come on a retreat. One of the deepest adventures that one can sign up for to take these weeks or months in solitude and begin to open the body and mind and heart as deeply as takes place in this environment. It's also worthy of noting, as you come and join the adventure, or those of you who are halfway in the midst of your adventure, that adventures are not always easy. The oldest, most widespread stories in the world are adventure stories about human heroes and heroines who venture into the myth countries at the risk of their lives and bring back tales of the world beyond the village. It could be argued that the narrative art itself arose from the need to tell of an adventure, that a woman or a man risking their life in perilous encounters constitutes the original definition of what is worth talking about. And then continuing, this is Vladimir Stefanson, who is one of the great polar explorers. He says, Having an adventure shows that someone is incompetent, that something has gone wrong. An adventure is interesting enough in retrospect, especially to the person who didn't have it. At the time it happens, it usually constitutes an exceedingly disagreeable experience." So I offer that to those of you who are in the midst of your adventures knowing that that can be part of the experience. But it's not just an adventure for its own sake. There's a profound and, if you will, a sacred purpose for our coming together. To remember who we really are. To remember who was born into these human forms that we inhabit. As the Buddha says, In the suttas, the purpose of practice is not merit and good deeds, nor concentration and stillness, nor insight and understanding. None of these things, merit, good deeds, concentration, insight, understanding, is the purpose of the holy life. But its purpose is the sure heart's release is that liberation of the heart that is possible for human beings. This and this alone is the purpose of leading the life of Dharma. Now, all of us in our own ways are well aware that the world is on the verge of going to war yet again. And there is some way in which, rather than ignoring or removing ourselves from that reality, that we actually have to understand that the work of this retreat is a direct response to that insanity. As my teacher Ajahn Chah put it, He said, we human beings are constantly in combat, at war, to escape the fact of being so limited, limited by so many circumstances we cannot control. But instead of escaping, we continually create suffering, waging war with evil, waging war with good, waging war with what is too small or what is too big, waging war with what is too short or too long, or right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. The invitation of the Dharma is to step out of the battle, to stop making war with the way things are, and to find a radically new way to be on this earth. As Joanna Macy says, even our scientists can see more quickly than the politicians, that there's no technological fix. No magic bullet, no amount of computers or internet can save us from population explosion, climate disruption, deforestation, continuing racism, and warfare, and extinction of species. We are going to have to want different things. Seek different pleasures, and pursue radically different goals than those that have been driving us and our global economy. We have to find another way. In the course of this retreat, we will not be giving you the world news. This is a CNN free zone, right? You can know that the world is going on, and only if there's something so urgent that it might be of importance to those of you who have family in other parts of this country, if some emergency comes about, we'll let you know. But otherwise, this is the place for, to be protected for us to do the inner work of what one of my teachers, Mahagosananda, called inner disarmament. Another language of the Buddha, when he spoke of the purpose of practice, of liberation, he said, just as the great oceans have but one taste, the taste of salt, so do all the teachings and practices offered by the awakened ones have but one taste, the taste of inner freedom. And in a way, our purpose here is... To discover that freedom through letting go, opening, purification, healing, discovering within ourselves that heart that is awake, compassionate. From the Anguttara Nikaya Luminous is this mind, says the Buddha, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned or unwise people do not understand, and so they do not cultivate and liberate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, when it is free from the attachments that visit it. This the noble followers of the way truly understands, and so for them there is cultivation and liberation of the mind. Moment by moment, we will experience breath, body, feelings, and thoughts. And we'll begin to notice that which arises that keeps us from being free. The entanglements that cover the natural luminosity of mind. The natural freedom of heart that is our birthright, we will discover in sitting and walking the patterns, the fears, the clinging that keep us from being free. Whether it is the first day or the middle of your retreat, we will be working systematically with the foundations of mindfulness, breath, body, heart, mind, consciousness itself. My friends, said the Buddha, here is a simile for the understanding of the practices of disentangling the mind from greed, hatred, fear, and confusion. There are, my friends, large impurities in gold, such as earth and sand, gravel and grit. The skilled goldsmith first pours the gold into a trough and washes and rinses and cleans it thoroughly. And when the goldsmith has done this, there still remain moderate impurities in the gold, such as fine grit and coarse sand, and the goldsmith rinses and cleans it again and yet again. And when this is completed, there still remains minute impurities in the gold, such as fine sand and dust, and the washing is repeated, and thereafter only the gold dust remains. The goldsmith now pours the gold into the melting pot and smelts it, melting it together. But the gold is not yet quite pliant, workable, or bright. It is still brittle and does not yet lend itself to molding. But a time comes after heating when the goldsmith repeats the melting so that the flaws are entirely removed and the gold is now pliant, workable, bright, luminous, and it lends itself to whatever beauty would be made of it, crowns and earrings, necklaces, or golden chain. Similarly, in the case of practitioners devoted to the practice of mindfulness, there may be such gross impurities as unskillful conduct in deeds and words. Such conduct the follower of the way abandons, releases, lets go, and relinquishes. And when one has abandoned these, there may still remain such impurities of a moderate degree, such as greedy, angry, or violent thoughts. Such thoughts the follower of the way gives up, puts away, releases, abandons. And when one has abandoned these, there may still remain such subtle clingings as those to relatives, to country, to community, to one's reputation, or even to states of meditation. And thus the heart is not calmed and awakened fully, but there comes a time when the heart and mind establishes stillness, settles down, becomes unified, and is able to be directed to the highest and freest states. This is the first part of this text. So the first level of inner cleansing, there is a kind of purification that happens on the retreat. No matter how luminous and beautiful our experience of consciousness may be, whether we come in at the beginning or whether we're here in the middle, there is a very deep release of the speed and clinging and grasping of our lives, the busyness of our culture, the ways that our conduct is out of harmony with our hearts. And so perhaps the first task on retreat, or a repeated one, for those who've been here for a time, in the, the most obvious purification, is just to simplify, slow down, be patient with where we are. I once walked the six miles from my house to Kent Lake, writes Barbara Ruth, poet, in less than four hours. But that wasn't my best time. My personal best is eight hours and fifteen minutes. That includes time resting with lizards sunning on the rock, writing down a dream remembered staring at Mount Barnaby, listening to woodpecker in the tree that harbors osprey's nest, wandering and listening now in the unseen shadows of my life. So the invitation here, in terms of our conduct, is to simplify. And those of you who've been practicing for some time and who are already living simply on the retreat, let yourself simplify further. To slow down and take care with walking and sitting and holding a cup of tea, to release the busyness or outer forms of conduct that keep us out of harmony with ourself. And this is done not in an abstract way, but in the minute particulars, the patience with putting on your shoes in the morning, the patience of waiting in line for lunch, just to be exactly where we are. A simple poem called "Routine." No matter what we are and who, some duties everyone must do. A poet puts aside his wreath to wash his face and brush his teeth. And even earls must comb their curls, and even kings have underthings. The retreat actually comes to life through a kind of patience and surrender, of just being where we are. And then the coarse things that move us and confuse us and entangle us in life begin gradually to be released, and the natural stillness of the heart begins to grow. But then the moderate ones, such as judging, angry, greedy, violent thoughts, and so forth. There we are, our conduct becomes simpler. But then there's that inner turmoil. And just as patience is required, so too is a great tenderness or compassion. Because as we open, and there's a purification of body, there's a real release of your body as you sit. The deepest body work happens. Then, too, the habits of mind will arise and all the entanglements that cause our suffering. And they need to be met in a respectful and tender way. A few years ago, I was with a close woman friend in a grocery store in California. As we snaked along the aisles, we became aware of a mother with a small boy moving in the opposite direction. The woman barely noticed us because she was so furious at her little boy who seemed intent on pulling items off the lower shelves. Quite natural since the best psychologists in America are designing packages to try to get you to do that. As the mother became more and more frustrated, she started to yell at the child, and several aisles later had progressed to shaking him violently by the arm. At this point, my friend spoke up. A wonderful mother of three, founder of a progressive school, she'd probably never treated a child this way. I expected her to give a kind of solid mother-to-mother talk to this woman. Instead, my friend walked up, and said simply, What a beautiful boy. How old is he? The woman answered cautiously, He's almost three. My friend went on to comment how curious he seemed, and how our own three children were just like him in the grocery store, pulling things off shelves, so interested in all the wonderful colors and packages. He seems so bright and intelligent, my friend said. The woman had the boy in her arms now, And a shy smile came upon her face, gently brushing his hair out of his eyes. She said, yes, he's very smart and curious, but sometimes he wears me out. My friend replied sympathetically, yes, they can do that. They're so full of energy. And as we walked away, I heard the mother speaking more kindly to the boy about getting home and cooking his dinner. We'll have your favorite macaroni and cheese, she told him. And the little boy smiled. So there's a slowing down and a purification of body. And then there's the tenderness for all those parts of ourselves that come up. The healing. The honoring of the measure of sorrows that you carry on this earth. In the Lakota Sioux, grief was valued among the Lakota Sioux. It brought a person closer to the gods. A person who had suffered a great loss and was grieving was considered the most wakan, the most holy, and their prayers were believed to be especially powerful. Others would ask them to pray on their behalf. So sometimes in the retreat, we encounter our suffering very deeply, and what's asked is metta, care, and tenderness. And as we do, as we slow down, as we release, as we open, as healing takes place, then there's the further refinement of heart and mind. where it says, when these are abandoned, there still may remain such thoughts as clinging to relatives, to community, to one's reputation, even to the states of meditation itself. And as we sit and walk, what's asked of us is to live in the reality of the present, To release our relatives, our portfolios, our engagement of how we're supposed to be and how the world is supposed to be, not out of lack of care for it, but to live more and more fully in the whole way, in the reality of this moment. There was a cartoon in the New Yorker some months ago that showed a car driving down a vast landscape of somehow the southwest it looked like. And there was a little road sign along the highway that said on it, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles. At this level, once you've slowed down, once the body begins to release, once the healing of the heart has had time to take place, you can get pretty still. But then all of the entanglements of mind, the habits of thoughts will come. And then it becomes the time to let go, to relax, to concentrate. And they're not opposites. To be steady, where we are and not in another place, to begin to trust that we can live more and more fully in the reality of the present. The text goes on with another image. Suppose the goldsmith now lights a fire takes the gold and puts it into his furnace or her furnace and now from time to time the goldsmith blows on the gold from time to time the goldsmith sprinkles water on it and from time to time the goldsmith examines it closely if the goldsmith were to blow on the gold continuously it would be heated too much If the goldsmith continuously sprinkled water on it, it would be too cool. And if the goldsmith were only to examine it closely, the gold would not come to perfect refinement. But if, from time to time, the goldsmith attends to each of these three functions, the gold becomes pliant, workable, bright, luminous, and can easily be molded into beauty of whatever ornament, purpose it would be put. Similarly, there are three qualities to which a practitioner should from time to time pay attention, namely concentration, energetic effort, and equanimity. If one gives regular attention to these, to the steadiness of concentration, to the meditative effort, and to the balance of equanimity, then one's heart and mind will become pliant, workable, lucid, not unwieldy, silent, overcoming all entanglements, and thus you will discover the true liberation of the heart. So as we begin to settle, and your first days, if you're here for the beginning of this second month, are really that settling process. Patience, kindness, letting go in the body, mind. But as you begin to settle and get quieter, or for those of you who are continuing, there then becomes the question of balance. Energetic effort which doesn't mean clenching your teeth and struggling. It is rather the effort to be present, steady, to be consistent in our awareness of this very life, this breath, this sensation, this step, to return over and over to what is present for us. Breath. This is from Terry Adams who lives his life in an iron lung. They told me when I woke to this body, each breath will taste my blood with the tongue of every creature who has lived. And I said, yes. And the air I breathe will be torn by rocks, abraded by fans and bruised in the factories of steel. And I said, yes. And they said the ants have a right to this breath as much as I and it erases their paths as they walk and as easily as it erases mine and I said yes. I will breathe air that has passed through the nail holes punched by children into jar lids to save the lives of fireflies and I said yes and I will breathe the force which blows windrows in snow and rubs waves in the sand and strips topsoil from farmlands and makes the cypress cringe from the sea and I said yes and I will breathe through the perforated coinage of sewer lids and I will breathe down in hot valleys with the breath of vegetables and I say yes And I will breathe what determines the path of falling feathers and the snow from the seared summits of mountains. And I will stay in a thousand years in a tomb until a mouse will free me. And I will blow a cloud on the final mirror of the dying and will make a quick slate for fingers shouting behind the cold glass saying again and again, yes, I will breathe. I am alive, I will breathe. The effort, then, is all the breaths. A thousand breaths, ten thousand breaths, a hundred thousand breaths. Do not ignore the effect of this wise action, says the Buddha, saying, this will come to nothing. Nothing. Just as by the gradual fall of raindrops, the water jar is filled, so in time the wise become filled and replete with goodness. So the effort to be present, steady over and over, to be here this moment, balanced with the cool waters of relaxation, of graciousness, of letting go, of not grasping. When you feel there's tightness, relax. As the poet William Stafford says, I embrace each experience as it arises. I participate in each moment's discovery. I am a butterfly. I am not a butterfly collector. We're not here to collect experience, but to allow experience to arise and touch us as it does and then pass away. To sit and walk and meet experiences as they arise with a graciousness, with an ease. A friend of mine, was once home alone when the doorbell rang. This is Sharon Salzberg. And he opened the door and found himself facing a disheveled, wild-looking person. As my friend attempted to find out what this stranger needed and discovered that they probably should leave, the man looked at him and said plaintively, Don't you know me anymore? In fact, they had never before met. At least in this life. And while it might have been wise to refuse this person's entry into their home, the words were a tremendous teaching. Don't you know me anymore? Don't you recognize me too as a part of your life? To be a bodhisattva, to open the heart, is to open our capacity to meet all that arises and know that it is ours. So the cooling waters, sprinkling the waters, is a graciousness, an ease, a yes, this too, a receptiveness. And then finally, the quality of equanimity. Just as the goldsmith blows on the fire or sprinkles water upon it, sometimes the goldsmith simply looks and pays careful attention. And in this way, meditation becomes a practice of balance, a bit like riding a bicycle. Most of the time, you'll feel in your sittings these small adjustments. Getting a little too tight, soften and relax. Getting a little sleepy, lethargic, sit up straight, bring more energy. (laughs) Feel like the mind is drifting, pay a little more careful attention. Feel like the mind is worrying or judging. Relax, bring a quality of loving-kindness these small adjustments, so that our bicycle stays upright. Now sometimes, you fall off the bike, or you crash into a tree, and then it's not a little adjustment, it's, okay, pick myself up, see how injured I am, thrust myself off, get the bike, re-establish which direction I'm supposed to be going, And sometimes that means going for a walk because things feel so unbalanced you just need to walk in the hills a little bit and take a breath and come back down again and start over again. Or maybe in the first few days it means taking a nap because you're sitting and you realize how exhausted you are. Or maybe in the middle of the retreat things were going along, it seemed quite well, And then all of a sudden, a wave of something else deeper arose from inside, which is fine. But we got completely entangled in it and lost. Feel like I've lost my way. Clean yourself off. (coughs) Pick up the bicycle. Take a little bit of a walk. Take a step back back, recompose, and again begin with balance. One of the reasons that gold is used by the Buddha here in this text is because from ancient times gold was seen as something valuable and beautiful. Gold and jewels as well, jewels is another image that's used. And if you go to the great temples of Asia, but in fact, if you go to the great temples and sacred places around the world, you will see gold and jewels. In part because they are an outer representation of inner beauty, of that shining luminosity of heart and mind that is our true nature. Rumi writes poems about gold, pouring down in the night as he sits and prays and filling his body. And one of the qualities of gold that makes it so remarkable is that it doesn't tarnish and it doesn't decompose so that you can find something that was made of gold that's beautiful 5,000 years ago in an ancient Egyptian tomb and it is as shining and luminous and beautiful now as it was for that Egyptian queen who wore it, or king. There is something in us as well that is luminous and untarnishable, and we are invited in this time, just as in the time of the Buddha, to look into our own hearts and minds, O nobly born, and discover that which is shining, gracious, free, luminous. It comes at first to our understanding, perhaps in small moments, where we're entangled And then there's a letting go and a freedom, and then we're entangled again in something else, and another moment of letting go. Those moments are really good news. They're the moments of space when we realize, yes, this freedom is not just possible, but it is possible for me, here and now. And it is never too late to let go. It is never too late to come back to this moment to be in balance. And I believe that the work that we do here is absolutely critical for the sanity of the earth. So I end with a poem from Mary Oliver. She writes, Wage peace with your breath breathe in firemen and rubble and breathe out whole buildings and flocks of red-winged blackbirds breathe in terrorists and breathe out sleeping children and freshly mown fields breathe in confusion and breathe out redwood trees breathe in the fallen and breathe out lifelong friendships intact. Wage peace with your listening, hearing sirens, pray and sing aloud. Remember your tools, flower seeds, clothespins, attention, clean rivers. Make soup, Play music. Learn the word for thank you in six languages. Learn to knit and make hats for all your friends. Think of chaos as dancing raspberries. Imagine grief as the outbreath of beauty or the gesture of fish. Swim for the farther shore. Wage peace. With every breath. Never has the world seemed so fresh, fresh and precious. Have a cup of tea and rejoice. Act as if armistice has already arrived. Let's just sit for a moment.